the joy and the wonder when Jesus we see. What a great line. And the other line, we come to the Father through Jesus the Son. So let's bow our heads. Um, and this morning I'd love to spend a wee bit of time praying for our leaders as we mark 70 years of our Queen on the throne. We want to pray for Her Majesty and acknowledge that she reigns at His good pleasure. So we want to pray for her and our other leaders. And then also um, I want to use Matthew 6 to pray for our own worries and concerns with the the hike and cost of living and things like that really impacts families. So we want to bring those before the Lord. Um, and it's a privilege for me to lead you in that. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging that we are in great need of you. And just at the start, Lord, we want to acknowledge that you are the sovereign Lord of the entire universe. Not even a breath comes out of our mouths. A heartbeat doesn't beat unless you give it permission. We are in utter and complete need of you. And it is in that spirit of humility we come before you this morning thanking you that we have breath to breathe and are found in this place this morning. We want to thank you, Lord, for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Lord, we acknowledge that she reigns at your good pleasure. Seventy years seems such it's a lifetime for many of us, Lord, and yet it's a blink of an eye from your perspective. Lord, using Psalm 72, we acknowledge that your reign is longer than hers. When King David was trying to find an analogy to explain how long your reign was, he pointed to the sun and the moon and said, your reign endures forever. For as long as the sun and the moon shall endure, your name endures forever. And Lord, that is good news for us. Because you endure forever, we have hope, we have peace, and we know that no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, the best is yet to be, because we are in Christ. Part of your reign is your return and one day, the clouds will spread wide open, and we will see you for who you are, the wonder and the joy when Jesus we see. We will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, and every single one of us, from queen, Lord, right down to poor and pauper, Lord, we will all be equal before you, and we'll see you as you truly are. Lord, I pray that for all of us in this room, that would be a day of joy. We know we will tremble, when we see you for who you are. And I pray that we would practice that trembling by coming before you on a daily basis as we get ready for the day when we will see you face to face. Lord, thank you for your majesty and your reign and your glory. But Lord, under your reign, and we live in a fallen world, we know that um, the resurrection isn't here yet. And we acknowledge that we live in difficult times, Lord. The curse impacts us all. And Lord, we can't not think about the, the price hikes that the cost of living is happening this week. And Lord, we're told that's going to get higher and higher. And Lord, many families are concerned about that. But Lord, we too bring that before you. You are a God who reigns from on high and cares about those details. And we know from Matthew 6, Lord, that you know not even a sparrow falls from the sky without you knowing so, Lord, I pray that you would give us faith as we think about the money that is needed to pay the bills, 
or the taxes or things to keep going in light of COVID in our businesses or in our families or in our relationships. Lord, please forgive us for those times when we have not had enough faith. You tell us not to be anxious. You tell us not to worry. And yet, Lord, we do it. Forgive us, Father. Forgive me, Father, for the times where I have not done as you've asked. Help us to seek you first and your kingdom and your righteousness. We pray that for ourselves. We pray that for our queen. We pray that for our leaders, Boris Johnson, Michelle O'Neill, Jeffrey Donaldson. Lord, we pray for all of the people in charge over us, that we would all unitedly put our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And finally, Father, we thank you for the truths contained in Judges chapter 4. As we turn now to look at that, Father, pray that we would, our hearts and our minds would be open to what you have to say to us in this spectacular passage, Lord. And be with Alan, Lord, as he opens it for us. Encourage our hearts. Rebuke us if necessary. But Lord, may we see you for who you are in it. For your glory and our joy, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, um, Judges chapter 4, verses 1, it's the chapter basically, and um, it's quite a, quite a passage. So let's just read through it, and we look forward to what Alan has to say to us. This is the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sirsa, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were there with him, from Harasheth Hagayim to the river of Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, 
For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was a peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was still lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. This is God's word. Well, good morning, and uh, thanks to Samuel for reading that. I think um, if, you look, if you look back to uh, the end of verse 21, um, there are, there's a little phrase there that's probably, uh, if ever there was an understatement in Scripture, this is probably it. You know, where it, after, after saying she drove the peg through his temple into the ground, it says, and he died. You think, well, okay, that's a surprise, isn't it? You know, if you get a tent peg driven all the way through, you know, it, it really is quite a gory, uh, quite a gory picture. Uh, but we'll say a little bit more about it, and we'll try to discover whether it's an example that we ought to follow um, in, in, in any sense. Uh, just in case you doze off uh, before the end, it's not, okay? Not in that literal sense at, at any rate. So we've come to Judges chapter 4, and we're going to be thinking um, about um, the story of uh, three particular characters, but a lot more as well. In fact, thousands of characters who are mentioned in, in this. And if last week I gave the talk the title, The Man God Uses, well, this week the title I would give to it is The Women God Uses. So it kind of balances it out, doesn't it? Uh, the, the women that God uses. Just recently, a couple of weeks ago, um, in my work at Belfast Bible College, I was reading through some papers that uh, some of my students had written, and they were case studies. I'd asked them to write a case study uh, that described um, a situation that a leader had led change 
could have been in an organization, could have been in a movement, could have been in a church, a leader or leaders had led the process of change. And uh, one, of the, one of the case studies that was presented was the story of a missionary uh, who had started some work in Chennai in India in the 1960s, 1964 in fact. Uh, this missionary, I think at the time, was quite young, um, in, living in New Zealand, uh, since God's call to go to India. So off they went, 1964, uh, moved by compassion at the tremendous need that there was. Um, they, the work began by uh, meeting the needs of women and girls who were in Chennai, teaching them practical skills so that they'd be able to get by in, in life. Um, and as time went on, uh, it ex the work expanded. Uh, it came to include a, a medical clinic. There was a training project for nurses. Uh, there was uh, like a food bank, I suppose, the provision of food for, for hundreds of people who were living in slums. There was a kindergarten. There was a primary school. There was a high school. The, 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 about 1,500 children who were being accommodated in this. There was a leprosy project. There was an HIV project. Um, there was an orphanage, there was a range of youth organizations, and there was the establishment of a local church. Amazing. And that work continues, what, almost 60 years later. And what my student was writing about was how that uh, over the course of time, as this thing had got big, and as the missionary had got older, um, the, the thing needed to change so that it wasn't just focused uh, on, the, on the work of that one missionary but it would, it would expand. Now, you probably guess, as I tell that story, and I deliberately didn't give all of the details away, but you may have guessed that the leader in question was a woman. Not a man, but a woman. And he went off traveling from New Zealand to Chennai in India and established all this work. A visionary woman, um, an inspiring transformational leader, um, the work that uh, she began with that mission has eventually reached a point. Eventually reached a point where it actually employed about 400 local people in in all of those projects. Now it should not need saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that when God wants to get something done, something of great significance, He does not restrict Himself to men. That woman and that story is just one example of it, and you'll know other examples of it. And so it was in the time of Judges. Among the various characters that God raised up at various times, um, when there were situations of great distress for the people of Israel, the tribes of Israel living in the promised land, uh, but being oppressed by, by other nations, among those men that God raised up, there's a woman, Deborah, who plays a hugely significant part. And it's her story that we want to think about for a little bit this morning. Now, the story is told uh, in two parts. We, uh, I, I just asked Samuel to read uh, one part of it, and that's chapter 4. Uh, you'll find if you read on in your Bible, you read on the book of Judges, that when you come to chapter 5, um, it's another telling of the story, but it's different. What we have in chapter 4 is, is just a, a straightforward prose account of, of the story. Here are the events that happened. Um, in chapter 5, it's a poem. Uh, it's like a song. It's a celebration. 
uh, of the things that happen. And uh, we haven't read that, but if you have your Bible in front of you, we will dip in because what we find with the poem, uh, among all the poetic language and all of the celebration and so on, we find there are details here and there uh, that, that add to the story as it's told in chapter 4. Now, a little bit of background, and some of this is going to become familiar, and that's okay if it becomes familiar to us um, because they're just lessons that we need to keep on learning. You'll notice that by way of background, there is repeated rebellion. It is the pattern of the book. Again and again and again and again, the people are unfaithful to God, largely in terms of idolatry, although there's all kinds of other wild behavior that happens as well. That's the pattern. Now, you'll notice if you look at uh, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, you'll notice that they fall back into this sinful, idolatrous behavior on the death of Ehud. Ehud's the left-hander that we talked about last week, uh, left-hander with a dagger. Um, and you'll notice also, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 12, that the same thing happened after the death of Othniel. Othniel was like the sort of the archetypal judge. He's the typical, the typical judge who's told without an awful lot of detail, but to give us the pattern, the basic pattern of the story. In other words, these two judges, as they come along and they, they, they deliver, because often that was part of what the judges did, uh, they delivered the people from the oppression of their enemies. Once they were no longer around, the people just went back to their old ways. Now, think back to your days when you were at school. Some of you don't have to think too far because school's coming tomorrow morning. Sorry to remind you of that, but it is. But, you know, you think of that typical scenario in school. Um, uh, I used to be a teacher, uh, so uh, th these, these things happen, you know, when the teacher says to the class, okay, look, I've got to pop out here for five minutes, or I've got to pop out here just for a moment. Now, you've got work to be doing. Make sure that you do it. And when I come back, I don't want to hear any noise. Now, maybe that was certainly the way it was when I was teaching. Maybe it's all, maybe it's all changed now. Um, but you, you get the scenario. And, of course, the teacher goes off. And then, first of all, everybody's very quiet. And then you get a couple of bold characters, and they start to whisper a little bit. And then it starts, the volume starts to go. And, of course, when the teacher comes back, it's, it's mayhem. People are throwing paper airplanes and, and, you know, fighting across the room and all this kind of stuff that, that's happening. The nightmare scenario, of course, is if the, head, if the school head teacher comes walking along the, the corridor and happens to, to look, in, look in and see what's, what's going on. Um, but you get the idea. And that's a little bit like what it's like in Judges. When you've got a leader, a deliverer, during that leader's lifetime, things settle down. The land has peace. But when the leader has left the scene, there's disobedience again. These people are so fickle, and their obedience is so shallow. Now, I, I don't want to dwell too much on this because we really need to get on with the story, but I, I do want to just underline something here. There's a couple of things that you notice. One is the importance of, of good leaders. Good leaders have an influence on the people they lead. But the other thing I want you to notice is that these people seem to be incapable of behaving well in the absence of good leadership. And it's a little bit like that, that note that comes at the end in the last few chapters of Judges where it says, in those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I think it leaves us with a question, doesn't it? You know, what is the depth of our obedience to God? What is the, what is the extent of our faithfulness to God? 
Uh, are we faithful in, in certain moments when there's maybe a particular, a particular time of enthusiasm and there are plenty of other people around us? But somehow when we're left a little bit to our own devices, we drift away. There's a challenge in that, isn't there? There's just to look at the, the fickleness of our own hearts. Of course, the second part of the background, and you come to expect this, the unfaithfulness of the people, and what happens then is that God allows their enemies to rise up against them. And so there is oppression. Uh, there's a hostile nation, and, and uh, for a period of time, they oppress these people. So sometimes it's Mesopotamia, um, sometimes it's Moab, but on this occasion, it is Canaan. That's the, the, the Canaanites where the people already lived in the land of promise. And their king is now, their, their king is called Jabin. Uh, we don't see an awful lot about him. He remains, he remains fairly much in the shadows, in the background in the story, but he's the king. He's the one whom God eventually defeats. Uh, but you'll notice that his agent is a military guy called Sisera or uh, Sisera is, is, is this guy, and he, he's the man who does the fighting. He's the oppressor. Uh, he's got what appears to be some fairly advanced military equipment, iron-plated chariots, uh, which he uses to keep everybody uh, oppressed. Um, some people reckon that the chariots, it, it wasn't so much that they were used in the heat of battle, but, but when the battle was won and everybody was, everybody was running from battle, it was pretty handy to have an iron-plated chariot to chase after the people that you wanted to capture and you wanted to kill. So he had, he had those. Uh, 900 is, is really quite a lot. Um, and the, the, this is the guy then who oppresses the people of Israel. Um, we don't get an awful lot in chapter 4 of the details of the oppression, but we get this information if you look on to Judges chapter 5. So just look over to chapter 5. This is in the middle of the poem. And there, this is the song of, of Deborah and Barak. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the roads were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased until I, Deborah, arose. Life was hardly able to continue. It certainly couldn't continue as normal there were severe restrictions. We've got used to having restrictions on, on life over the past couple of years. Um, these people were being restricted, but, but because of a military enemy. The main roads were deserted. There was a fear of marauders and bandits and being attacked. Therefore, if you, if you were a trader and you were making a journey to, to do, go about your business, you had to stay off on some of the little side roads. And life in the villages that probably were not defended by, by, by walls around them, life there basically came to a standstill. And so the people cry out to God. And once again, just as he did with Othniel, just as he did with Ehud, so again, he's going to raise someone up. But who will this be? Now, what's interesting here is that in those previous stories, God seems to raise up a particular individual, and the rescue is through the hands of that individual. But in this story, it's not just one person, but there actually are three people, three key people, plus a lot of others, a, a, a lot of other mi maybe minor characters in, in some way. But God puts a particular spotlight on three different 
people who are all part of this work of deliverance. There's Deborah, who's a prophetess and a judge. There's Barak, who's a military leader. And there's Jael, who's really good at do-it-yourself, especially with a hammer, you know, especially killing your enemies by yourself, by using the hammer to, to do so. And these are the key players in this deliverance that happens. So we're going to think about each of them. The first one is Deborah. She's a prophetic leader. Now, right away, you notice there's a difference with the other judge stories. This is why it's helpful to have that story of Othniel, where there's a pattern that's set out for us. And the pattern is people were unfaithful, people were oppressed, they cried out to God. God gave them a deliverer. So here the people are unfaithful, people cry out to God. And instead of meeting some strong military uh, leader who's going to come and fight a battle, well, we find Deborah, a woman, not a warrior, but a woman who's a prophetess. And she's a noble woman. Uh, she's in touch with God. She's able to bring God's voice to speak into the situation. Uh, some people reckon, and I think they're right, that, that she's probably the most honorable person in the whole of the book of Judges. And when you, you know, certainly in terms of the major characters, uh, you're not really going to find anybody who comes close to her in terms of, of the quality of her character. One of, she's actually one of the rem most remarkable people in the whole of the Old Testament. So we've got the enemy who oppresses, the people cry out, and, well, here's Deborah, this noble woman who's in touch with God. Now, notice several things about her. The first thing, and this is very obvious, is that she is a woman. Now, in our English translations, uh, it doesn't draw an awful lot of attention to it. Um, in the Hebrew, it does draw quite a bit more attention. It says she was a woman, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. Uh, so it's almost underlying this, underlining this detail that she's a woman. We don't know very much about her husband, Lapidoth, at all. You know, normally you'd, you'd sort of think, well, oh, she's got a husband. So she probably stays at home and does all the cooking and, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. Well, she has a husband, but really the only thing we really seem to know about Lapidoth is that Lapidoth was married to Deborah, and Deborah was by far the more famous person in this particular couple. Lapidoth was married to a very strong woman. I don't know if it's weak men who marry strong women or if it takes a strong man to be married to a strong woman. You can discuss that over coffee and lunch, um, especially if you happen to be married to one. Second thing to notice about her is that she's a prophetess. In other words, she's somebody through whom God spoke and revealed his mind. She's actually one of several female prophets in Scripture. Uh, I think the first, most, most no, first really notable uh, female prophet or prophetess in the Old Testament is Miriam, the sister of Moses. And you read about her in the book of Exodus. You read, uh, you read about her song uh, in, in, the book, in the book of Exodus. And maybe you remember in the New Testament in the birth stories of Jesus, that Luke, the way Luke talks about it, there's a woman called Anna who is a prophetess. You go later in the New Testament to the book of Acts and the daughters of Philip. Philip, an evangelist, uh, and he has several daughters who prophesy. So it's not unusual 
but our attention is drawn to this. She's a woman, she's a prophetess, but beyond that, she functions as a judge. That's the same kind of language that's used about other judges who, uh, in, in the book. Very often when the book talks about judges, it's really talking about deliverers. Now, the thing about Deborah is that she doesn't lead the, the, the army in the same way. She doesn't go out and fight. She is, uh, she is in the battle. We'll see, we'll see about that in a moment. Um, but there is another military leader who's a man. Um, so perhaps when it says that, that she judges the people, uh, the NIV translation is that she was, she was leading them. She was governing the people. And maybe we think, well, that's, that's kind of unusual, is it not? Uh, and you can see that the people come in verse 5. They come to her for judgment. And some people have said, well, you know, this is, this is perhaps that the people are crying out to God. They're wondering what God is going to do in the middle of this situation. And they come to Deborah, this prophetess, to ask her what the judgment is. What is the, what is the verdict that God is saying? What is God saying into this situation? And that may, be what, that may be what's happening, but there also seems to be this ongoing um, role that she has as a leader and a governor. Uh, of, of the people. Um, there, there, there she is, leading these people. And you'll notice also that she operates in the vicinity of the palm of Deborah. So there's a particular tree. And some people have looked at that and said, well, that's interesting. Um, maybe that implies there's almost like a, a priestly role that Deborah has. And that's very interesting because then you would have Deborah, who's a prophetess. She's involved in ruling. And there's also a kind of priestly role uh, that she has. You wonder, well, where, are, where are the priests at this, in this story anyway? So she's a really remarkable person. And we also discover, we go to chapter 5 and verse 7, there's a beautiful expression that's used about Deborah where she's described as being a mother in Israel. Um, now, there's a little book, uh, not just a little book, but a significant book uh, by Derek and Diane Tidball, and it's called The Message of Women. Uh, it's an IVP book. Uh, and they have a chapter on Deborah uh, from, the, from the book of Judges. And one of the things that they say about Deborah as a mother in Israel, a couple of things they say about Deborah as a mother in Israel. One is that mothers are concerned about the future of their children. You know, what, how's, how's it going to go? What's, what's going to happen? And so on. And you see that in Deborah. But also they say mothers are fierce protectors of their children. And so it is that at a time when people were, not, haven't, were, were unable to travel on the main roads, when village life had come to a standstill, when, when nobody seems able to do anything, up stands Deborah, a mother in Israel. She is a remarkable woman. But she doesn't lead alone. In fact, God uses her to call a military leader who is going to become the leader of the act of deliverance. And his name is Barak. Now, it's worth noticing that uh, Deborah goes with him to the battle, so that when you come to chapter 4, verse 14, uh, it is Deborah who has the, the sense of, of the strategic moment. Now is the time to move Barak. So although Barak's leading the troops, Deborah is saying to him, Okay, now is the time to go. She's, she's in touch with God, and she's able to do that. But he's the guy who's in charge of the troops. He leads them into battle. Um, although there's a sense in which uh, it seems that 
all he's got to do really is mop up after the work that God does. Um, he does attack Sisera with the sword, um, but you also, there's a very strong hint in chapter 5 that the major problem that Sisera and his army had was the river Kishon, which appears to have flooded just at the least convenient time as far as the Canaanites were concerned. Now, iron chariots would be fine if you're driving across the plain and it's dry. Not so good if you're trying to drive across a territory and the river has flooded and the wheels are getting stuck. And maybe that's the reason that poor old Sisera has to abandon his chariot and get out and make a run for it. God is at work in this, but Barak is the one who's leading the mopping up operation. But you'll notice that Barak would not have done anything apart from the message that God sends through Deborah. Now, God calls different leaders. Uh, we'll talk about the story of, of Gideon um, next week, God willing. We'll talk, about, we'll talk about that. I think, you know, Gideon gets an angel who comes and gives him a call. Barak doesn't have an angel appear to him. He is Deborah, this remarkable lady. And she says, right, okay, Barak, it's time for you to get the army together, get out and deal with this oppression from Sisera. Now, he's a bit hesitant, but put yourself in his shoes for a moment. There's been years of oppression. Um, life is very difficult. It seems there's a shortage of weapons, even. There's very little incentive to ask, uh, or very little incentive to, to act. And you sort of ask yourself, uh, how would you have responded in this situation? Would you have said, yep, been waiting for this moment for a long time? Or would you have been a little bit hesitant? He was, he was a bit hesitant, and he wasn't the first, and he wasn't the last to be hesitant about a particular challenge. So he says to her, okay, I'll go, but I'll only go if you accompany me in this. Now, this hesitation thing, um, he wasn't the first person to hesitate. You think about Moses and all the excuses that Moses made when God called him. We'll see next week about Gideon. Oh, well, could we have one more wee test? And can we do, you know, the thing about the fleece and if it's wet and the ground's dry and, you know, and then the opposite and so on and so on and so on. All, all, the, all that, all that hesitation. You know, there are a lot of timid men around. And Barak says, well, I'll, I'll do this, but only if you come with me. If you're not going to come with me, I'm not going to go. And Deborah says, well, all right, that's fine. I'll come with you, but you need to know you'll not have any honor in this because the honor will go to a woman. You think, well, maybe it's Deborah. Well, actually, the story is going to tell us it's a different woman. And she says, God will hand Sisera over to the hand of a woman. I think, what on earth is going on here? Uh, what, is, what does Deborah mean by all of this? And why does Barak want Deborah to come with him? And I'll just throw out a few ideas. You can think a little bit about these. Uh, but, but one thing, to be positive about it, one thing might be that Barak is saying, well, Deborah, you're the one who's really in touch with God. You're going to have the wisdom to know how we should act and when we should act. So I want you to come with me. Possible, and certainly that's what seems to happen in verse 14. And when Deborah is saying to him, well, you know, Barak, in the end of the day, a woman's going to get the honor for this. There's not really going to be anything in it for you. Is she testing him a little bit and saying, you know, are you willing to do this even though you don't get the honor for it in the end? Or is it some kind of rebuke? I suspect it is some kind of rebuke. 
There's another story in the, in the book. It's in chapter 9. It's about a man called Abimelech. Uh, and he gets a, a big stone dropped on his head and, by a woman. And as he's about to die, he says, Oh, somebody just kill me with a sword, please. Don't let it be said that I was killed by a woman. You know, on the field of battle, um, it wasn't regarded as a, it was regarded as a bit of a, a shameful thing if you got killed by a woman. And I think there's par- probably something of that going on. Barak, you're called to be a military leader. Well, I'm not really sure that I want to go. Well, that's okay. I'll come with you. But you need to know that you will not get the kind of honor that a military leader would want to get from this because it's going to be a, a woman who's going to apply the finishing touches to it all. And I think there is that sense of hesitancy and, and therefore a, a, a little bit of rebuke to Barak. Now, he still goes, and he's still mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 in the chapter of faith. But it's interesting, isn't it, this, this hesitation? You know, God has said, I want you to go. And he says, well, if you're not going to come with me, I'm not going to go. He's actually prepared to disobey God if Deborah is not going to come with him. Hesitancy. And maybe it's a bit of an indictment, not just on Barak, but maybe it's even a bit of an indictment on the men. You know, that God's not going to give them the honor because they're not prepared to get out in the field of battle and lead. I don't say that to take away from the, the part that, that Deborah played, but here we've got this very hesitant man. So we've got a remarkable woman, Deborah, prophetess, leading Israel, mother in Israel. And we've got this hesitant man who kind of trusts God, but he's hesitating about it. And then we get Jael, the hammer blow. Now notice a little detail, chapter 4, verse 11. There's a little bit of a break in the story. You know, the story's going along and so on. And then in the middle of the story, we've got this, this break in the narrative. We, we're told about the family of Heber, the Kenite. You think, oh, what on earth is that doing in there? And he's related to Moses' father-in-law and all the rest. You know, what's that, what's that about? And we've actually got to wait until chapter 17. After the chaos of the battle, uh, we've got to go down to verse 17. And here we pick up his significance. And we discover that he was an ally of Jabin, the king of the Canaanites. So if Sisera has that information in his head, and he's escaping on foot, presumably having abandoned his chariot because it's got stuck in the overflowing river, he's got this idea in his head, oh, I know what I can do. There's a, there's a good mate of, of, uh, of the king who lives not too far from here. His name is Heber the Kenite. I'm sure that if I go to him, he will provide me with somewhere where I can be sheltered. And he gets there, and there's no sign of Heber. Isn't that interesting that, you know, with Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, there's really not much about Lapidoth. And now we have Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, um, the, the wife of Heber the Kenite, and he's, Heber the Kenite, is, he, he's not really around either. You've got these women acting uh, without any particular support or encouragement from their husbands. But Jael is here. And, you know, she's almost like, she's almost like a female Ehud. You remember Ehud from last week? She's almost like a female Ehud. She's just as cunning. She's just as ruthless. She's just as decisive as Ehud. And, Fred, you've got to say it, you know, just like Ehud, well, she's a bit deceitful, isn't she? Oh, come in, you know, please, come. You know, you'll be, you'll be safe here. So oh, just 
just give me a little bit of, just give me a little drink of water. I can go better than that. Give you a drink of milk. Here's a drink of milk. Why don't you just lie down here and make yourself comfortable? I'll make sure you're fine. And he lies down and he goes off into a deep sleep. He's exhausted. And while he's sleeping, you know, it's almost, some of the commentators say, it's almost like slow motion when you read it. You know, she creeps up quietly as he lies there exhausted. You're thinking, what's she going to do? You know, she's got a tent peg. She's got a hammer. She takes it and she drives the tent peg all the way through his head and into the ground. Uh, And he died. Whoa, surprising. Um, And we think, well, well, that's kind of weird, isn't it? You know, does, does God endorse that kind of thing? And actually, the text doesn't tell us whether God thinks that was a good thing or thinks it was a bad thing. It's one of those things that happens. And we realize that here is God, again, using actually a surprising way of rescuing his people. There's some really, really interesting, interesting weapons in the book of Judges. You've got a left-handed dagger, a double-edged sword held in the left hand of a warrior. There's another incident where there's an ox goad. Uh, There's a tent peg and a hammer that we've got here. Eventually, with Samson, the jawbone of a donkey. All kinds of these, these really strange weapons. It doesn't really matter what the weapon is, does it? You know, how strange the, we- how the weapon might be, because if God is at work, then he's going to use all kinds of things. And it's really important for us to see that God is at work in this story. Yeah, Deborah's a remarkable lady. Barak eventually shows some faith and gets out and obeys God, even after his hesitation. Jael, for all the questions we might have about the morality of what she does, she acts decisively, and God uses her action. God is at work. And you you see this, if you read chapter 5 and you read that poem, and you'll see the supernatural events that conspire against Sisera. The stars conspire against them. The river conspires against them. But look at verse 4. Look at these several verses in verse 4. In, sorry, in chapter 4. Look at these several verses. In verse 3, God is the one that the Israelites cry out to for deliverance. So, God, what are you going to do about this? We need you to help us. Verse 6, it is God who gives the marching orders, albeit through the prophetic ministry of Deborah. Verse 14, it is the fact that God has gone ahead of Barak that enables Barak to go into battle. God's gone ahead of you. Follow him. Get in after him. In verse 15, it is the Lord who routes the enemy with the sword. And in the summary at the end of chapter 4, verse 23, it says, it was the Lord who subdued Jabin. Good job, Deborah. Good job, Barak, eventually. Child, we wouldn't like to meet you, you know, um, but well done anyway. In fact, it's interesting that in chapter 5 in the poem, Jael is described as most blessed of women. You've got mother of Israel, mother in Israel, and Jael, the most blessed of women. Wow, that maybe uh, changes your mind a little bit about what the Bible says about the ministry of women. There you go. She's blessed because she's so good with a tent peg and a hammer. But God is at work. And by the time Barak eventually arrives at Heber's tent, he comes in and, well, you know that guy, you know that guy, Sisera, that you were chasing? Well, here he is. I saved you the bother, you know, and there he is. 
nailed to the floor. And Barak would have realized, well, God, God really was the ultimately in control here. And, and that whole thing about the honor going to a woman, well, sure enough, it's Jael. God is at work. But I want to finish by, by trying to make this apply to us in a little bit of, a little, in a little way. Now, you know, there's different ways we can do this. You can look at the story and you think, well, who are you most like in the story? You know, you could do, you could do that. You think, are, are, you, are you like Deborah? You know, are you somebody who, who hears from God, who has a sense of what God is, is saying and how God wants uh, his people to act? Is, is, is that you? Uh, are you someone who God allows to speak his wisdom into situations? Are, are you like Barak? Maybe you're like Barak because you're hesitant. You know, think, I hope God doesn't really ask me to do anything because I'm a bit nervous about doing anything in this current situation. Or are you like Barak in the sense of, well, all right then, if you come with me, yeah, I, I'll, I'll go and do this. I mean, eventually he is the guy who leads, who leads the people. It's a bit like the grand old Duke of York. I don't know if you noticed that, but he had 10,000 men. And he did march them up. It seems like he marched them up to the top of the hill march them down again. Um, maybe, maybe that's how you see yourself, be a bit like that, a bit of a leader, you know, that people follow. Or maybe you see yourself like Jael, not literally with a tent peg, but when there's an opportunity there, you're able to act decisively. You can think, you can think about those, those, those kind of ways. It is God who's at work, but, you know, He uses people with different gifts and different abilities. But what about the 10,000 men who marched to the top of the hill with not the grand old Duke of York, but with grand old Duke Barak? What about them? Who were they? Chapter 4, verse 10 says they were essentially from the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And in chapter 5, there's a really interesting section in chapter 5. It's like a little roll call of most of the tribes, not all of them, but most of the tribes. And it tells us about some of the tribes who got involved. So chapter 5, verse 14 says that Ephraim and Benjamin got involved in this task of dealing with the Canaanites. There's a reference in verse 14 to Machir, probably indicating uh, at least part of the tribe of Manasseh. Uh, Verse 14 again, Zebulun's role is underlined there. Verse 15, Issachar is mentioned. Verse 18, Zebulun yet again the tribe of Zebulun, they risked their lives, as did the people of Naphtali. And from what we know about the geography of the area, it was probably Issachar and Manasseh, Naphtali and Zebulun, who were the, the closest to the action where, where all of this was happening. And it probably was only right that they would be among the main people to get involved in this. But what about the others? Because there are others who are mentioned. Look at verse 15. Reuben, What's Reuben doing? Well, thinking about it, you know, we're, we're, we're thinking about it, you know, but meanwhile, we're just going to sit around here and we're going to listen to a little bit of music being played by, by some of the shepherds, verse 15. What about Gilead? Well, you know, we live on the other side of the river, you know, not sure that we're going to go to the trouble of crossing the river to get in there and help. What about Dan in the southwest? Well, he just stayed with his ships, and Asher in the north stayed by the, by, the, by the coast. Maybe Asher had just settled down with the Canaanites, was too comfortable with the Canaanites, didn't want to fight them, and maybe Dan was too preoccupied in, in trading 
with his ships. And whatever their excuses, the Bible has it on record that questions are asked about these people. And it's ever thus, isn't it? God at work. But he does his work through people like you and me. And when you read an account like this and you see there are key people who have got key roles to play, but you see all these tribes and you realize that just like you and me, there are some people who put their hand up and say, I'm going to get involved in this. I'm going to play my part in this. And you have others who sit around and, well, it's not really convenient or doesn't really suit me or I'm quite comfortable where I am. Thank you. And you wonder in the final accounting of it all when, you know, because, because it is God who's at work. God's still at work today. He's as much at work, <coughs> he's at, much at work today across our world as he was here in this story in the book of Judges. God is still at work. But when the account comes to be written, what will they say of us? What are they going to say about you? What are they going to say about me? Are they going to say, yeah. Put, she put her hand up. You know, she got involved. She wasn't afraid to be inconvenienced. She was courageous. She got out there and, and, and served. Or are they going to say, well, you know what? They were just sitting there thinking about it. But it was all too much trouble. God still gets his work done. But the challenge for us as we look at these leaders and we see God's using all kinds of different people, the challenge for us is to say, well, Lord, you know, am I going to be involved in this? Or am I just going to remain sitting on the sidelines? So let's take a moment and be quiet. Um, just allow, allow uh, our, our thoughts to settle. Um, and to think about what God might be saying to us in all of this. Maybe some of us have gifts that we've never even recognized as gifts. And the Lord wants us to stir those up and use them. Some of us are maybe hesitant, fearful. Some of us are comfortable. Some of us have been maybe doing quite a lot, and it's easy to look around and see others who are maybe not doing so much and get a bit discouraged. And maybe we need to renew our zeal and renew our commitment. Lord, we thank you again for your word. And we thank you for the way that, that you were at work in this story. You worked through three very different people and through all those thousands of soldiers as well, the part that they played. Father, would you help us to be available for you to use us and that as you work, we would have that desire to be part of what you're doing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.